You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Good. What up, everybody? Buongiorno, buenos dias, nihao, bonjour, and konnichiwa, motherfuckers. Welcome to Abacabo Cafe. This is the English Language Orange Road podcast. I am your host, Jason Almy. I want to thank you very much for tuning into this episode. Today, we are going to be discussing television episode 28, Dangerous Decision, Manami-chan's Big Adventure. This episode originally aired on October the 12th of 1987. It was directed by Toba Takayuki, who previously directed episode 24, which was the episode that introduced the smarmy little shit Kazuya. This episode was written by Tomita Sukehiro. This is a name that you've heard me say many times before. Tomita has now written eight episodes. Most recently, Tomita also wrote episode 24. So, these are both of the fuckers responsible for giving us Kazuya. Now, this episode focuses all of its attentions, near all of its attentions, on Manami. We all know Manami as the dutiful, responsible sister. Maybe to a fault, as we're going to explore a little bit in this episode. And today we learn a little bit more about Manami's internal world. What's going on inside of her head. We don't see a lot of that. We're going to learn that she's like many other teenage girls. She wants to go out, she wants to have fun, she wants to meet people maybe romantically. Also, we're going to learn that she's blind as shit. And we begin this episode in media res, as is fairly customary at this point. We get to hear Kimito Island Cafe yet again. This is some pretty well-used background music at this point, and with good reason. I mean, this is a great track. I dig it. And it's the perfect track to play while Manami is preparing for her day out, her adventure. She's in what appears to be a public bathroom. She's adjusting her hair and makeup. She's um, getting all dolled up. She's getting ready to go. Her hair is down. It's kind of uncharacteristically voluminous. I can't understate how big her hair is. It's actually a wig. 
She's also missing her glasses. That's a notable feature for her, and it's something that's going to come back at the end of this episode, that this is a, a characteristic feature of Manami is her glasses. She's missing it. And in fact, if it weren't for the little preview that plays before this very episode, I'm not even sure that we as an audience would realize that we were watching Manami in this opening scene. I mean, if the episode weren't named Manami's big adventure, maybe we wouldn't have realized that this is Manami that we're seeing. Now, Manami gets to test her new lookout on Komatsu and Hata, and it obviously works. They go tearing after her to find out who she is. They're probably going to ask her what her boob size is, too, these idiots. Manami seems to break the fourth wall here as she tells no one but us, the viewer, uh, that this is her super makeover. Now, Manami has broken the fourth wall once before. To wink at the audience in episode three, Kasuga had just gotten done sternly lecturing her and Kurumi about dancing at hamburger joints or something like that. And she turns to the audience, looks at us, and winks. Now, I have a pet theory that the Kasugas actually have special powers in addition to the ESP or ESP powers that are not fully explained or explored in the series. It, even powers that they themselves might not be fully aware of, but they take advantage of nonetheless. For example, I've mentioned Kasuga's dumb luck. On a previous episode, I even speculated that perhaps dumb luck was one of Kasuga's ESP powers. Perhaps it is. He Shit just tends to work out pretty well in the end for him. He manages to pull off some really unlikely shit pretty regularly throughout this series. He's got some dumb luck, we gotta admit. And maybe this is part of like the ESPs, giving him better luck than he would ordinarily have had. He doesn't seem to be aware that his luck is extraordinary or possibly supernatural, but he does really seem to lean on it a good bit. I think maybe Manami's hidden power is her meta-knowledge that she's a character in a show. She seems aware of her audience in a way that the other characters don't seem to be. We flash back to Manami performing her makeover. She puts a, on a wig. Again, that's not her real hair, that giant thing on her head. That's not her real hair, and that's why it's just so damned big. And as she's getting ready, as she's doing her prep, we see the background is no longer the public restroom that she seems to be changing in. It's like the cosmos. There's stars and vast dust clouds that are whizzing by behind her. And this abstraction of the background is something that you see in Orange Road, oftentimes used in flashbacks, more often than that used in dream sequences to uh, abstract the imagery that we're seeing. But in this case, uh, her recollection of, of her prep is also abstracted. Uh, with this cosmic background. I don't know. It looks like the silver surfer should be flying by or something, Galactus or something. But it's just her getting ready, and the, the stars are whizzing by. Now, meanwhile, Kurumi is the one who has to feed Kasuga, Takashi, and Kyosuke. And she feeds them this super spicy stew. She uses something like five bottles of Tabasco. So she goes at it which is actually, to me, more evidence that she's really evil, like I mentioned before. She does shit like this just to fuck with others and terrorize those around her. Kurumi might be brought to tears by Kasuga's critique of her stew. He was a little harsh, but I think her tears are for show, crocodile tears. If we know anything about Kurumi, 
It's that she's quite capable. She's independent. She does not normally display a desire for her brother's or her father's approval. Bluntly, Kurumi is going to do whatever the hell she wants to do. It's more likely that she's trying to manipulate them both into eating their whole portions, and it clearly works. Kasuga, ever the people pleaser, he can't abide by making his sister upset, whether she's faking or not. He bites into a whole ass onion. Before finishing the stew, he just grabs the pot and just dumps it down his gullet. With this, we see evidence that Kasuga values his sister's feelings. Laid out in the very beginning of this episode, it is important to him that his sisters not feel bad, that their feelings not be hurt. And if their feelings are hurt, he feels that, feels some responsibility for hurting their feelings. He's a massive people pleaser again. He, he really can't, but one thing he can't abide by is hurting other people's feelings, which makes him open for Kurumi's manipulation too, in my opinion. I think this scene is meant to show us also that Manami is essential in the domestic functions of the Kasuga household. Without her, they'd have to drink Tabasco straight from the bottle. Kurumi might start cooking with bleach, who knows? But the, the fact of the matter is that this scene establishes that Kasuga is going to do what it takes to address any, any uh, issues with his sisters. He does want to help his sisters to be happy, but it also shows us that without Manami, this family is not gonna eat. They're inept at cooking. So I think this also says something about expectations for females and domestic roles. Why does it fall to Kurumi to cook when Manami is off for the day? Manami is not around. Everyone looks at Kurumi. Why not look at Takashi or Kyosuke? I mean, why would we automatically assume that the person that doesn't have a penis has to do the cooking? They ought to be at least capable of bringing home their own food. I mean, if Manami is nowhere to be found and the dinner's not made, I don't know, maybe after that stew, maybe they're better off getting Mr. Fried Chicken. I don't know. Mr. Fried Chicken could be making another appearance. And in this episode, we do get a sense of how almost painfully shy Manami is. She has no social interactions that don't involve her brother and sister. So keep that in mind. She's always with her brother or sister or both. And all of her social interactions involve those two. She really has to expend a great effort to talk to this dude that she stops. And even then, she can only ask him this nonsense question. And she acknowledges that she'll never be able to find a boyfriend like that. Which leads me to the idea of boyfriend hunting in general. Of course, it's natural for people to be interested in dating. It even seems fitting that Manami wants to forge a relationship that is uniquely hers and separate and distinct from Kasuga and her sister Kurumi. But on the other hand, it seems like she's placing a weight or or importance on finding a man. Why is it her first priority to go find a boyfriend? It's like the first time she gets out of the house in who knows how long, and she's like, I gotta find a man super fast. I don't know if she's trying to get married at 16 or what, and like get the hell out of the house so she doesn't have to cook for Kurumi and, and her uh dolt of a brother anymore. Who knows? But She's got this priority, like her first day off, she's got to find, got to find a man. That's, that's her whole checklist. And so it makes me wonder, are there no other pursuits that interest her or, or pursuits that interest her that the filmmakers would like to show? So there's nothing wrong with Manami or anyone for that matter, wanting to have a boyfriend, but it seems maybe a little stereotypical that the filmmakers would make her sole priority about finding a man. Personally, I think more than some social expectation that she needs a boyfriend, 
This episode is about her desire to be seen, even as she's kind of concealing her identity to some extent. And I'll, I'll pick this thread up a little bit more towards the end of this episode. Of course, we need a little bit of conflict, so these delinquents go after Manami. And they're, of course, drawn less favorably than Manami and uh, other female characters in the show that we're meant to uh, sympathize with, like Shikaru and Ayukawa. And surely they don't think Manami is a member of a rival gang. She doesn't look anything like a gang member. So there's the Catholic theory that they threaten her because she's talking to men. It's like a puritanical thing. This this young single girl shouldn't be talking to these young men because there's there's this puritanical desire for chastity. There's the jealousy theory. They were drawn less favorably, kind of ugly. They target her because she is cute, she's attractive, and she is engaging in these activities that they as delinquents feel barred from, and they may feel insecure about their own physical appearances and their own ability to uh, chat with dudes. But we need the delinquents to go after Manami so that she will lose her contacts. That's a very important plot point. Otherwise, the remainder of this episode would not flow as it does. Just as we needed Kasuga to eat all of the super spicy stew in order to alter his voice so he wouldn't be immediately recognizable to Manami. Big ups to Kasuga for coming to his sister's rescue. He employs a disguise here too. So just like Manami took the time to disguise herself somewhat, create an alter identity, an alter ego, he changes his shirt. He puts on the most 80s ass sunglasses I've ever seen in my life. I love it. It's not dissimilar to a superhero changing into costume to help someone. Think of all the old uh, cartoons where the guy runs into the phone booth and he runs out in his superhero costume and he goes and helps someone who is being bullied, who needs the help. What's more, okay, dig this. Kasuga's color scheme is now red and blue. He's wearing a, a blue undershirt and the shirt he's wearing over that is red. What's more, he has a large S on his chest. I don't think the parallels to Superman are accidental here. They're framing this very much as if it's an alter ego. He's changed clothes quickly to come to Manami's defense, and it also allows him to be mistaken for someone else, kind of in the way that people presume Clark Kent and Superman are different. Despite Superman not wearing a mask, not covering any of his facial features, he just takes off his glasses and changes his hairdo. Not very different than what Manami did. So there's something going on here with this alternate identity. I don't think they're using it for a uh, superhero type of story because that's not how this story goes, but they're using it as a means to explore identity. And these are young people who are, uh, are growing into themselves during these teenage years and I think this is meant to to give them an opportunity to explore what they're about. Mostly Manami. And again, it looks good on Kasuga. He takes one for his sister, despite not even realizing it was her. He didn't run when he was given a chance by the delinquents, and he wound up eating a yo-yo. Also, these delinquents have the dumbest weapons. One lady pulls out like a six-foot staff that apparently had been in her sweater this whole time, like right behind her. The other one just has a bowling ball. Of all the impractical weapons in the world, a bowling ball. I think you might be better off with your fists. I understand bowling balls are heavy. You wouldn't like to drop one on your foot. But can you imagine 
holding a bowling ball, gripping a bowling ball by the bowling ball holes. You're using three fingers to grip this thing and, and trying to swing it at someone to hit them in the jaw. It really seems highly, highly impractical. And he uses the power on them to fend them off, which he really should have done from the beginning before even eating the yo-yo. It's another one of those consequence-less power uses. Even though he uses it on them, they're staring him right in the face when he uses it. They've got no idea what happens. Who cares? It's not that type of episode. We're not worried about the power right now. Amazingly, we have hit the 11-minute mark in episode 28, and we've still seen neither hide nor hair of Ayukawa and Shikaru. They finally show up at over 11 minutes. Shikaru has apparently bought a sweatshirt with Jingoro printed on it. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but maybe she had it made. Shikaru and Ayukawa notice Kasuga and Manami running from the delinquent girls outside, and several freeze frames of the running action tell us, without telling us, without saying explicitly, that Shikaru and Ayukawa are recognizing him. They don't initially recognize Manami, but they do recognize Kasuga despite his mild change of appearance. Really, at this point in time, we have to acknowledge that even though he took a yo-yo to the noggin for her, Kasuga is probably the world's worst brother. Take off your glasses, let down your hair, and seriously, you're a different person to him. I'll give Komatsu and Hata a pass for not recognizing her earlier. They're idiots, and they haven't lived with her for the past 14 years. But I have to wonder if he would have recognized her if she was wearing an apron and holding a vacuum. That would have looked like Manami to him. She's not wearing an apron and, and, and not sweeping something up or cooking something. That can't be my sister. In a quiet moment talking with Kasuga, Manami says that maybe she should run away, but then she immediately says she's kidding. But maybe she's not kidding. Maybe she's expressing what she really wants, but then walking it back. I think that's a theme in this show. That's something that does occur somewhat frequently in this show, is that people use a pretense to behave in a certain way that maybe they really want to, or say a certain thing that maybe they really want to express, but then they wind up walking it back for the sake of appearances or something like that. It's, it is something that happens and will happen uh, in the near future. Here she does talk about how she found her life dull and drudging. I couldn't believe she makes breakfast for everybody before school. Like on a school day, she cooks. Bruh, Cap'n Crunch is both easy and delicious. Let's put out the milk in the Cap'n Crunch. Here's a bowl and a spoon, dog. You got this. She mentions that Kasuga is always dirty before he gets into the tub, which is how one becomes clean. So, I don't know, She does she expect him to be clean before bathing? And then why would he need a bath if he's already clean? That part really didn't make a ton of sense. Like, he gets the tub scummy, I understand, but like the tub is also where you clean the dirt and grime and scum off of yourself, so... I don't know if she just wants him to go hose down outside first and get like the top layer off and then get in the tub. But the idea of like taking a bath because you're already clean, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me either. But I guess cleaning up after your older brother who's not very conscientious would be a pretty terrible task. Now, Manami phrases her makeover as almost a metamorphosis here. You get the impression that she wants to shed her yoke this is almost like the transforming into someone else. This is the exploring other identities part, being someone else, being in disguise for the day, trying someone else on. If she were someone else, she wouldn't have all of those responsibilities. 
the disguise makes total sense here. She's not just going out for an evening off. She's really trying to explore how her life might be different. And it's at this point that, thankfully, Kasuga stops being the worst brother of all time. It doesn't take him too long to figure out that he's talking to his sister that he's lived with for the last 14 years. He's known her her whole life. And Kasuga decides to make a day of it. This is really a very Kasuga move right here. After expressing how she's felt, Kasuga decides to show her a good time, make it fun for her. It's his empathy on high display here. We see him taking Manami through several activities that are designed to show her a good time. It reinforces that he's a people pleaser. He's got high empathy. As soon as this person expresses how she feels about her everyday life, he decides, let's show her a good time. It also shows that he values Manami's feelings, sort of in the way that he valued Kurumi's at the beginning. He was willing to make a sacrifice for Kurumi when she started crying. He drank that whole stew and it burned his throat. Now, he he doesn't want to spoil it for Manami, so he doesn't break her fantasy at this point. He doesn't reveal who he is in relation to her. He allows this fantasy to persist. It's like an older sibling playing along with a younger sibling at Christmas, pretending there's a Santa even though they know that there's not. It's meant to be an innocent lie. It's meant to benefit Manami, not hurt her. And honestly, this whole sequence is super cute. And might be a little bit cuter if Manami didn't want to bang her own brother at this point. That that kind of pulls you out of the cuteness a little bit. But I've always kind of loved this sequence because it shows this sort of uh, sweet side of Kasuga that he doesn't want to spoil this thing for Manami. And, and then it also shows this inner world and these these sort of um, interior hopes that, that Manami has. After uh, rowing across a small body of water, we see an image of Two rowboats docked as a symbol. And it could be something about the sibling connection that Kasuga and Manami are are forging here. Although really only Kasuga is, is aware that he's connecting with his sibling in a way. It could also perhaps be a symbol for dual identity. That there are these two Manamis, the dutiful domestic and the spirit craving freedom and, and wild human experience. I think maybe the first option is correct as we cut away from the two boats side by side, the two boats facing the same direction, they're sitting still. We cut to Kasuga and Manami sitting side by side, again, both facing the same direction as they look out over the water. So there's this preservation of composition across the two shots that I think is probably meaningful here. So that symbolic expository shot of the two Rowboats, I think, is mirrored then with Manami and Kasuga sitting side by side. And I think it is meant to say something about the the two siblings just being together. And Kasuga, uh, for his part, I mean, his role in this episode is really to take a moment to appreciate his sister's position and allow his empathetic nature to work in his favor and her favor, as we see by the end of the episode. Now, what's crazy is that it turns out Manami had her glasses on her person throughout that entire day. So after losing her contacts, she actually could have popped those right back on. It might be crossing her alter egos a little bit, but at least she could see. This is important, especially since she meets a young man that she takes a liking to. Why wouldn't she want to get a good look at him? He could be ugly, or he could even turn out to be a direct fucking relative of hers. Manami cries at the point in time when Ayukawa puts her glasses on for her. 
It could be that she was scared of the delinquents and simultaneously touched by Ayukawa's kindness, but it could also be that Ayukawa putting the glasses back on her, Manami was struck by the futility of trying to escape her everyday existence. The glasses then become a symbol of her figurative shackles. It also helps explain why she refused to put them back on despite having them with her all day. It would have given her a good look at this guy she liked. She didn't want to put them on because they were too much a symbol of this other life that she was trying to escape from or at least explore alternatives to. Ayukawa says at this point that she looks just right with her glasses on. Like that's the Manami that that she knows. It's incongruous with Ayukawa's character to imply that Manami is best in her underappreciated domestic role. I don't think that's what Ayukawa is saying. Go back home and cook some dessert. I think it's more likely that Ayukawa means that Manami is a, a wonderful person as she is and that she doesn't need to be someone else in order to attract others and to forge these relationships outside of her brother and her sister. And it's probably this realization that precipitates the resolution of Manami's internal conflict as we next cut to her arriving home in seemingly pretty good spirits to find out that Kasuga has done all of her chores for her. And that shows us that, again, as with the beginning, we're bookended. Kasuga was willing to drink all of the spicy stew for Kurumi when it hurt her feelings that he expressed that the stew kind of sucked, which honestly it did. But then at the end, we see a very similar gesture when Kasuga comes to understand that Manami's domestic role really is a lot for her and it weighs on her. Again, he wants his sister to be happy. So he does all of her chores for her. And I'd like to think that throughout the remainder of the, the series, that Kasuga carries that lesson forward. Something like Scrooge, he'll be a better person for the end of his days. We may not see him performing more chores around the house, but I like to think that Casca turns over a new leaf at this point and is more willing to take on some of these domestic duties, things that need to be done. Clothing needs to be washed. Dishes need to be washed. Things need to be cleaned. But it shouldn't all be on Manami's shoulders. And Casca, you live there too. You can clean up after yourself, buddy, and I hope that he does after this. I like to think that he does. This is a turning point and a lesson for our main character. Now, a note on the twins. I think this is an interesting episode to talk a little bit about the twins. Manami and Kurumi have this yin and yang, opposing forces type of feel to them. Kurumi is like this agent of chaos. She's also strongly associated with change, the uh, youth and associated cultural youth revolutions. On the other hand, Manami is kind, caring, domestic. Kurumi is loud, brash. Manami is demure and polite. She adheres more to the old mores that uh, a young woman should be demure, she should be polite. Manami is always trying to be very polite to people, even people like Komatsu and Hata that are just complete idiots and and uh, way too uh, sexually aggressive with them. And she still preserves this kind of old idea that, that, that women should be polite and, and not directly engage in conflict. So there's a little bit of uh, opposites here with the sisters, despite being twins, same age and everything like that. 
they still represent these opposite kind of poles or ends of the spectrum. And it's something I want to talk about more once we've completely finished the uh, television series. But it's interesting to think about the different values that they seem to symbolize in these characters. Now, Manami also is kind of the invisible sibling. She's got this idiot savant Kyosuke and this bloodthirsty demon Kurumi as siblings. So, of course, Manami takes a less prominent role by necessity. She's just going to be outshined by those other two. Also, she's uniquely responsible for domestic duties in the Kasuga household. Manami's motivation for this episode is very real, very human to me. She wants to break from her routine, a night off. Everybody wants a night off. Who wants to work seven days a week, 365 days a year? But she also wants to be seen in a new light or seen at all. She wants somebody to see that she has value besides her domestic duties. She wants someone to think that she's cute, uh, to treat her. She's asking all the guys to buy her a drink after all at the beginning of the episode. She wants someone to dote on her and, and big up her a little bit too. I mean, she wants a pat on the back for all the work she does. She's also very shy. So even as she seeks attention, she does so in this kind of costume. Her own brother doesn't recognize her initially. So again, she's the invisible sibling. And there's something really adorable about Manami in this episode. I'm really glad we got to see this level of character development. So I ask myself, is it filler? This episode largely sidelines the triangle dynamic. Ayukawa is a supporting character at best, and Shikaru makes a cameo, really. In that sense, it's very much a side story. And Manami even steals the focus from Kasuga to a large degree, although he remains in control of the voiceover in this episode. So I can see how this episode might seem like filler to some viewers. It's tangential in nature. It's exploring these other side stories that aren't necessary to complete the main narrative. But on the other hand, I just spent 35 minutes talking about this episode, and there's plenty of artistic merit via visual symbols. There's some great stills with some excellent line work. Kasuga's vibe is almost 280s for words, and Manami's character is enriched, in my opinion. For me, there's too much value in this episode as an important growth opportunity for Kasuga, even as he deals with conflict that is tangential to the main story of Orange Road. So I can't consider this episode filler. But you know what you should consider? You should consider supporting Team Almy on Patreon. Team Almy brings you fine podcasts such as this one that you just listened to. Thank you very much for that, by the way. So head on over to patreon.com slash Team Almy. I will send everybody that signs up for the Patreon merch. I don't care if I have to send it to Pakistan, which I have done. I will send it to Pakistan if I need to. Also, uh, I publish... Additional content, bonus content a lot. We're going to be doing uh, the pilot episode. I'll be doing a full analysis of the pilot episode of Orange Road. It's not actually part of the television series, but um, I'm going to be posting that up there as well as uh, making a katsu sand later this month for everybody to show you how to make a katsu sand exactly like they do it in Orange Road. At least it'll look the same. I don't know if it'll taste the same as the cartoon celluloid, but the Patreon is there. I very much appreciate every one of you guys who supports I really, really, really do from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, guys. Also, I want to encourage you to check out my other podcast. This is a Team Alamee co-production. It's called Creatures of the Night. It's 
for kooky conspiracy theories. We don't get political. There's no, uh, there's no voting agenda there. We just like to do mushrooms on beaches and talk crazy shit about aliens and DMT and, and outer space and just weird stuff. So don't worry about it. It's like skinwalkers and other weird kooky stuff. So go check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes. And also, guys, today, I got another track from Earl Knight. This is Back to the Red Straw Hat Time Remixed. I hope you guys enjoy it, and I can't wait to see you again next week.